living at like exiles, uh, the theme of Peter's letter. We've been walking kind of half, half a chapter a week through this. We're going to take, um, we're going to be coming to 1 Peter 4. Uh, we're going to take a break next week. I'm going to be in Arizona next Sunday morning speaking at the end of a, um, a donor event for Evangel University. And Pastor Chris right here, our high school pastor, still fairly new, and I'm, I'm anxious for you all to connect with his heart. So he'll be preaching. Thank you, Chris, for doing that next week. And, yeah, you got some fans out there. And um, so you all be here. Bring your friends. Today, living near the end, in a priceless paragraph right in the middle of chapter 4, that begins this way, verse 7, the end of all things is near. That's a pretty stunning statement. He doesn't say the end of some things is near, but the end of all things. Just think of that. Everything you like, the end of it is near. Everything you dislike, thank God, all the injustice, all the evil, the end of it is near. Jesus described that moment in Mark 13, verse 26. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Jesus, who's at the right hand of the Father, who rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, is coming back. And the end of the old order will come and the new creation in Jesus. We get to taste that right now as we ourselves come to Christ. We're saved and we're in the new creation. We worship Him and we see His intervention as we pray for one another. But that day is coming when the Son of Man will come in the clouds with power and great glory and the end of all things will come. And Peter said, it's near. That was 2,000 years ago. God has His own perspective on near, but Jesus gives it to us in the next few verses there in Mark 13. But about that day or hour, no one knows. This is a deliberate strategy on the part of, of the Lord. He said, not even the angels in heaven, and this is stunning, nor the Son, speaking of Himself. Nobody knows except our Heavenly Father. No one knows when He's coming back. I have a pastor friend who somebody in his church wrote what became a popular book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. <laughs> that was wrong. And that just discredits, discredits us. And so we, we, we almost don't hear preaching on the second coming of Christ anymore. I wish some people would read their Bible before they write their books. And there it is. I mean, even I don't know, Jesus said. And there's a reason, because if we did know, God knows our hearts too much. We'd, we'd probably be slouching. We'd probably be taking it easy until we needed to be ready. But he says, be on your guard. Be alert, for you do not know when that time will come. So the question is, how, how do we live until then? And Peter, in a very concise Boom, 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 one, two, three way. In a very concise way, he is going to answer that question. How do we live until then? If we don't know when the end is coming, but we live in light of the fact that the end of all things is near from God's perspective. Now, I had somebody say to me years ago, she said, 
as you know, my, some of you know my backgrounds and all my educations in engineering. Someone said, you preach like an engineer. And I did not take that as a compliment. <laughs> I mean, even to me, that sounds pretty boring. I think what she was trying to say, she was very different disposition than me, very artistic, very empathetic, all this stuff. And I think she was saying, well, you have this way. In truth, engineering taught me to look for the pieces, to break them down into pieces, and then see how they interconnect. I think, I see outlines. I see flowcharts in my brain to this day. That's what engineering did to me. So I think that's what she was saying. I'm very happy to say to you today that Peter is about to write like an engineer. There's going to be three pieces, beautifully connected together, really simple. And as a student said to me after first service, I can do that. And I want you to look, when we see these three pieces, um, some of you have been around Central for a while. It may make you remind, may remind you of something uh, pretty, uh, pretty familiar to us. So I'll, I'll leave that up to you till the end. So how should we live? Number one, we pray. If we don't know when Jesus is coming, but we live with alertness, we pray. The end of all things is near, verse 7. Now let's finish the verse. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. And, and to be alert and of a sober mind simply means that we're unclouded by distractions and self-indulgence. Now, it's so easy to be distracted. And, and if, you could take, if you could take alert and sober and reduce them to one word, there would just be self-control. That, that they're just, I mean, we're self-controlled enough with our affections that we're not just carried away into every meaningless thing in light of the fact the end of all things is near. It, it means, it, it means our, we have a certain self-control over our schedule, unlike all these people say to me, you know, I never have time to pray. Well, you know, we, we need to be alert and sober. And, and on the most literal level, it means don't be intoxicated in ways that cloud your mind and, and open yourself up to the spirits of darkness, which drunkenness does, which drug use does, not, not to mention marijuana that just dulls your brain functions in the first place. He said you live apart from all of that and you live a life that's alert and ready so that you can pray. And that word pray is hungering for the intervention of Jesus. And so our hearts, we've, our, our affections aren't, aren't just distracting us in every other direction. We may have affections for many things. I happen to have a great affection for my wife, but um, there is an affection that just keeps us going God's way a hunger for him. In fact, that's how I define praying. It, it's just hungering or yearning for the intervention of Jesus. We, we were today in praying for people, we were yearning for Jesus to intervene in places of sickness, in places of relational conflict. We, we prayed together for Turkey and Syria this morning. We're, we're, we're yearning for the intervention of Jesus' life in places where his influence is not apparent right now. When you pray, you're yearning for Jesus to step in. There are times when I prayed and all I could do is groan. I mean, even your groan, just that deep yearning. Oh, Jesus, we need you so deeply. Would you step in? And this is, this is 
a yearning of the soul. God's word says God's spirit prays through us, sometimes even with groanings that cannot be uttered. This is a yearning for this, and I'm so grateful for people in our church family who yearn for God. And it's going to be great. We have a group that meets here Tuesday at noon. They fast and pray at noon and pray for all of us. Um, I'm so grateful for that. It's open to anybody. I'm grateful for just the last couple of weeks I've heard, I uh, think about new t- two new small groups we didn't even know existed. You won't find them on our website. But they said, yeah, we get together and we pray. And, and we pray for each other and we pray for God's intervention in our church. Um, I love this. I love when you linger in many of our services like we did this morning a little bit. I mean, just lingering in the presence of God, yearning for Him. Uh, my wife leaves an I pray ministry, nine groups of, nine group, prayer groups that, that meet once a month, but also keep in touch constantly during the month with each other and praying for each other. Uh, you know, our pastors, we pray together on Thursday mornings, and we pray together on Sunday mornings early, and we pray with the rest of the staff on Tuesday mornings, and, and we're just scratching the surface. Prayer is the incense that fills the throne room of God. And he said, there needs to be a certain discipline and self-control in you that keeps you alert and unclouded with other distractions and other loves so that you continue to yearn for Jesus' intervention in your world. So we pray. And then he tells us we love. We love. The very next verse. Above all, that doesn't mean instead of prayer, which he's talked about in the previous verse, but, but prayer is pretty ineffective if we don't love people. And he says, above all, love each other deeply. Love each other, not in a superficial kind of Christian politeness at church, and we ought to be Christianly polite and pleasant with each other at church, but deeply goes deeper. <laughs> it means you really love deeply the family of God, and the people in your life that don't know the Lord but need the Lord, you, you just love deeply. Although here he's mainly speaking to the church. Let's love each other deeply. At a time when we're so politically polarized, some churches are racially polarized, let's love each other deeply. Can I hear an amen? amen. Love each other deeply. We could change the world if we just loved each other deeply. We just keep opening the doors to his presence and glory. And uh, offer hospitality to one another. And why he would add the last phrase, I don't know, but without grumbling. (laughs) Come on, no moaning here. Okay, I'll do it, but I don't like it. If you love deeply, first of all, you're going to love in a wounded way. Love in a wounded way. Because he said love covers a multitude of sins. Probably the most common conversation I have as a pastor with people are conversations of how much they've been hurt, either by individuals or institutions. That comes up more often in conversations than probably any other one topic. And I want to tell you, all of us have been hurt. I've been deeply hurt, even by people in a church. And they have, they have their passions, they have their good reason, and they think I'm coming short. And institutions can be very toxic and can really hurt people. But he said, you know what? When you love deeply, you've heard the expression wounded healer. Well, you also love in a wounded way. You, you may have been the brunt of other people's sin or of institutions' sins. But this kind of deep love trumps that. You, you love in a way that covers over a multitude of sins. Here, here Peter is 
quoting from First Peter, from Proverbs 10, 12. You don't really understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. And he's quoting from Proverbs 10, 12, which says, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. You don't need to win every fight. You don't need to get even all the time. You may need to bring, bring boundaries. You may need to have tough conversations with people. But there is a love that covers over a multitude. You, you may be a wounded warrior, but you still, something won't stop loving people, even the people who hurt you. That's what Jesus did at the cross. He still loved people that were hurting him. And then we love in a welcoming way. He said, offer hospitality. So we love in a wounded way and we love in a welcoming way. We, we just welcome people in. Now, hospitality um, in the Greek, sometimes it inferred, especially to strangers. And, uh, and in, the, in the first century, the Roman world had done the church a favor, actually, even though they were persecuting Christians. They'd built great roads. They unified that part of the world with the Greek language. And they had imposed a certain Roman peace. So there was enough order, enough transportation means and enough common language that Christians could travel all through the Roman Empire and preach the gospel. But you wouldn't stay in the, in the roadside inns. These were not Hiltons. They had nothing like that back then. In fact, the roadside inns were places of just sheer drunkenness and prostitution and organized crime. And so traveling Christians who were trying to share the gospel with others, missionaries been sent out by churches, they needed places to stay. And they may have come to a place. And Peter's saying, saying these, you may not even know them, but these people are, are here. They're, they're coming. And, and when you love each other deeply, it not only covers a multitude of sins, but it also opens up your home. In fact, there were no church buildings for the first 300 years of Christian history. And so where did churches meet? In people's homes. And if nobody was willing to open their homes. I know it's a lot extra work the night before getting your place clean. I know it's a headache. But people were literally willing to open their homes so the church of Jesus Christ can meet and worship and grow. And, and then, this is a head stretcher. Hebrews 13 verse 2. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. I'm just going to leave that there. I don't know who might knock on your door next, but he said our default position is to say yes before no with our homes. I thank God for many of you who open your homes during the week for life groups to meet. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for those of you who invite people into your homes. Our homes aren't as necessary as in the first century. Um, for places to meet for the church. We have buildings like this and we have nice hotels, but at least your hearts. Are you showing hospitality in your heart? Because Jesus is coming soon. Um, just opening your heart. And then, not only love in a welcoming way, but love in a willing way, without grumbling. And everybody said, ouch. ouch. No, 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 no. It's not an amen moment. It's an ouch moment. I'd rather complain about the inconveniences it causes me. But Jesus' life makes us love each other deeply. And, and, and Peter just felt like he needed to add that. By the way, no moaning, griping, and complaining here. Not, okay, I'll do it only if I have to. That wasn't Jesus on the cross. 
They say Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. He wasn't grumbling about having to suffer to get me and you into his kingdom. He did it for the joy of being in relationship with us, his living church. So we love, and he's already said we pray. So we, we pray, we love, and we serve, and we serve. That's where he ends, we serve. So, are you recognizing anything here? Pastor Carter caught it early this week. In fact, I was supposed to be at a men's retreat in North Dakota this weekend, this week, and I was supposed to get back late last night. It always makes Pastor Carter nervous when you're flying from another part of the country, especially when there's, it's 20 below up there and there's blizzards. Well, I got to Chicago partway Thursday, and then all of a sudden, just before I left, my flight up to North Dakota got canceled, couldn't get anywhere. I ended up not going. I did part of it by Zoom here from our studio on Friday morning. But I just felt like, just in case, I need to go over my notes with Pastor Carter. And I know you would have preferred to hear him do this message. He glanced at it. We pray, we love, we serve. He said, that's amazing. That's our vision. Our vision as a church is to connect people to God and connect people to each other and to connect people to their purpose in life. I could summarize all of that in three words. We're here to pray, love, and serve. That, that's what we're all about. Carter saw it immediately. I was so proud of him and grateful and relieved that somebody gets it. <laughs> Peter preached our vision statement 2,000 years ago. We serve. Thank God for those engineers. Just clear. Just pray, love, and serve. This is not complicated. I studied rocket science, but with some authority I can say this is not rocket science. <laughs> it's just pray, love, and serve. Why? Because you don't know when the end is coming. The fact is, the end of everything that otherwise fascinates you is going to come to an end. So Peter says, each one of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Now that's an interesting phrase at the end. You are stewarding and he's linking it to the word gift. You all have gifts that you utilize to serve. And he said, they are expressions of God's grace in its various forms. Well, I thought God's grace only had one form. I thought by God's grace, I, I can be saved. Not my good works, but what he did on the cross. By God's grace, I'm forgiven and saved. Well, the New Testament talks about God's grace in a much more multidimensional way. It is, yes. That, that grace is what brings a mercy of God that you don't deserve so you can have your sins forgiven, belong to Him. But the grace of God, in a larger way, is the daily impartation of the life of God to you. And, and he says it comes in various forms. In other words, we each wear God's grace in different ways. It's true of all of us that we belong to Jesus because of His grace. That's true of all of us. What's not true of all of us is the form of God's grace that we live in day to day. Um, this, is what, this is what Paul writes about in Romans 12, verse 6. We have different gifts. There's that word gift again. According to the what? The grace. Paul and Peter must have talked about this. According to the grace given to each one of us. So we all wear God's grace. In fact, right here in Romans 12, Paul, Paul says, it's, I, I always find it a little humorous, 
So he said, we, we all have God's grace, and it's very, there's a uniqueness of grace that's given to each of us. And so he said, if that grace is prophesying, he, he kind of says, so what are you waiting for? <laughs> and for some of you, he'll go on to say, some of, your, some of what grace looks like on your life is a supernatural ability to organize things. So Paul says, so get organizing something. Don't be waiting around. He says, some of you, that grace is, is, is uh, leading. So he said, lead. And some of you, that grace is coming alongside people and helping them come alongside them when they're de devastated and you don't know how to explain God in those moments. But you just have a way of coming alongside, letting them know they're not alone, encouraging them to keep trust in the Lord, assuring them you're still praying for them. That's a powerful way to wear the grace of Jesus to others. Some people do that better than I do because they wear God's grace in a little different way than I'm gifted to do. But we, we, we together wear God's grace in many different forms. So what Peter is saying to us is really two things, what he just said and what he's about to say. First of all, grace comes in unique forms to each one of us. That's what we're trying to say. And then grace, and this is where he'll conclude, grace comes with the infusion of the Holy Spirit's power. So he says in verse 11, the very next verse, if anyone speaks, he's still talking about serving with our gifts, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. You just were speaking the very words of God. What a radical thought that you can be his mouthpiece. That's why when people are baptized in the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues. It's like that supernatural reminder that we now are becoming the mouthpiece of God. I mean, what an amazing, humbling thing. And, uh, and if anyone serves, he goes on to say, they should do this with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. So if you're greeting at the door, thank God for our amazing greeters. You need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. There, you, know, you may be able to smile like everybody else and, and shake hands like everybody else, but when the Spirit of God is filling you, I mean, there's something of a connection that happens beyond that. You, you may be coming in, sometimes, sometimes people volunteer in our offices, they're, they're, they're just doing administrative paper shuffling work to help us, but but do it in the strength of the Holy Spirit. I mean, years ago, I, I had to work through. I always worked hard. I'm always trying to be prepared for everything I need to do. But, but I, I realized years ago, internally, I sometimes try too hard. I just put myself under too much stress. Like, it's all up to me. And, he's, and so my little motto now in the way I try to live my life is I work hard. I always try to be prepared. But I'm not trying too hard. I work hard, but I'm not trying hard. I don't know if that makes sense to you. It's my way of saying, I don't do this in my strength. I don't need to be stressed out. It's not all up to me. Peter said, if anyone serves, do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. And no wonder then he concludes by saying, so to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Because he's the why behind the what. He's why we serve. He's why we love. And he's why we pray. And it's because of his power that we can pray and we can love and we can serve. Because he's the beginning and the end of it. We do it for him and then he helps us to actually do it for him. Hallelujah.